Turn with me this morning to John chapter 8. We're going to finish up this chapter starting with verse 51. And this morning, we see the end of the interaction that Jesus has with the people in the temple. Last week, what we saw was a... uh, This has been an ongoing story, so last week was fairly intense um, with Jesus calling the people the sons of the devil and liars and murderers. So... If we, didn't understand, if we don't know that coming into the passage this morning, we might be a little bit confused about what's going on, not understand some of, the, some of what's being spoken. Um, also last week, Jesus contrasted those accusations, and those are not just accusations, of course, but true judgments, that they were liars, murderers, and sons of the devil, um, That's all in contrast with himself, who he is adamant throughout the book of John in declaring himself to be the Son of God. And so picking up right at that spot this morning, Jesus proclaims to them a message of hope. So if we start just with that message of hope, and you don't realize all of this conflict that's come before, which has also been filled, of course, with these declarations of there being hope, we're going to be totally lost. Context is very important in this. So we've got to remember that that's what's come before this, that prior to that, uh, the, the religious leaders had brought in a woman who was caught in adultery, and they were trying to trap Jesus. They were um, using her life as a tool. They were liars and murderers is, is an accurate description of the Jews at this time. But of course, it's also an accurate description of any number of us today as well, isn't it? And so you've got the mixing together of this message of hope and this this intense condemnation on sin and warning to be sons of God rather than sons of the devil. And so Jesus offers them right at the moment of this very intense conflict, once again, a message of hope, but the Jews reject it as Ridiculous is what we're going to see this morning. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 8, 5, or, or 51 through 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? 
Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, and you have not come to know Him. But I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus knows the stakes in this argument. And this is an argument. It's a, it's a record of an ongoing argument between him and the Jews. And the question is, as we saw last week, what does it mean to be a son of God? Or what does it mean to believe, as John is laying out for us in the entire book of John? And because Jesus knows what's at stake, because Jesus knows that eternal souls hang in the balance. And remember that this is what Jesus' work is all about. He's been saying that he's the Son of God, but he's also been saying over and over again to the Jews that all he ever does is the work that's been given to him to do by the Father. So if we take a step back and we think, okay, as the church, as people who claim to be followers of God who are Christians today, in comparison to the Jews, we know quite a bit more, right? We know the end of this story, that Jesus, that the the story doesn't end here. But of course, that the Jews end up killing Jesus, and that he ends up rising from the dead. And so there's been further and further proof of his sonship. There's been further and further proof of who he is as he claims to be. Um, And we know more explicitly that he is the Messiah and that the Messiah's work is the saving of sinners, right? So if that's what Jesus' work that he's been given by the Father to do, If that's what his work is all about, is saving sinners, reconciling them to God and making them sons of God. Then we've got to to take into account how Jesus gives this message to the people when we think about ourselves interacting with others. Okay? Okay? The fact that Jesus knows what's at stake, the fact that Jesus is intent on accomplishing the work that was given to him to do by the Father, which is the saving of souls, it is because of these things that Jesus is as intense as he is throughout this passage. You follow? It flows out of the work that he's been called to do, how he does that work. 
So I want to spend some time this morning looking at how Jesus does this work. Recognizing that souls hang in the balance. Jesus, in where we started, where we picked up, starts with this gospel message. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, are you comfortable with me saying that's a gospel message? I mean, if you look at it just on the surface, and you throw away the fact that Jesus is speaking, okay, and that it comes out of the Bible, and that everything in the Bible we want to say is gospel at some level, right? and you just look at the words and you try to filter it through your theology, if I were to just be standing out on the street corner and say to somebody that if they keep the words of Jesus, they will never see death, are you going to be comfortable with that? A lot of us are going to not be comfortable with that, okay? And the reason we're not going to be comfortable with that is because it's too works-oriented. Keeping the words of Jesus. You know, we'd prefer that he would have said something like, if you believe me, if you believe in me, if you, if you believe my words, then you will never see death. And of course, many places, this is what he says. Many places throughout the New Testament, the the message of hope, the gospel message, is given with the word believe, right? But you also have this promise here of keeping. And one of the things that we see over and over again in the book of John is that belief and practice really can't be separated. They just go together so closely that it's that it's just as good for Jesus to say now, here, if you keep my words, you will never see death. As it is for him to say, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. Why is it just as good? Well, because if you believe that, then you will keep his words. To keep his words is to believe that. Because that's what his words are. So this is a very simple gospel proclamation. And part of what it focuses on is obedience. Right? There's just no avoiding keeping his words, having this really strong connotation of obey. Right? Now, this is one of those things where adults and kids are different. You know, Paul talks about, When he was a child, he thought as a child, and when he was an adult, he thought as an adult, right? Okay, so now, those of you who are old enough to grasp implications and connotations, so I'm not talking to you little kids right now, all right? You see the difference with this. Keep my words, right? And you can understand the relationship between belief and obedience. But little kids have a little bit harder time with connotations and 
and these deeper levels of meaning, right? And so, uh, you don't say to your child, keep my word, right? You say, obey, now. Because that one word, obey, is the simplest way to say that. Obey. So kids, when you hear the word obey from your parents, you know what they're saying because they taught you obey early on. And when you're talking about really little babies, you just teach them a couple of words that are very important for them to know, like don't touch, right? Or no mouth. Or, or just no. And then, and then active commands come here. These are, the, these are the level at which we start our obedience, right? Well, the same holds true in the spiritual life that we start out, we start out so childlike in our understanding of what God is calling us to. But we shouldn't stop with our childlike understanding of what Jesus is calling us to when he says, keep my words. We start out knowing, okay, well, I guess this means I need to stop gossiping. I need to start loving. To stop looking at pornography. I need to start reading my Bible. There's all these particular individual commands that we know, that we've heard, that come out of our heart because they've been written onto our heart by God, right? And you see that even with a little baby who knows that they're not supposed to be doing something and, and they hear your voice and they're like, was he looking at me when he started talking? I'm not sure if he was talking to me, right? That's, that's the level at which we start with our spiritual life. We start as babes. But as we mature, this call of Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Our understanding needs to grow deeper and deeper of what that looks like, what that means to keep his word. In other words, our understanding of the gospel must grow. We do not stop with being children, but we mature in our faith. And so, Jesus is pushing the Jews. He's pushing them to grow in their understanding of what God has called them to. What has God called the Jews to? They think they understand what he's called them to, right? Daddy will solve the problem. They, they think they understand what, what God has called them to because they call themselves sons of Abraham. They call themselves sons of God. And Jesus is 
Jesus is confronting them with the fact that they are not actually sons of God, but sons of the devil. He's confronting them with the fact that they haven't been keeping God's law because if they had, they would love Jesus because he comes from God. And so throughout this interaction, both what we read this morning and what comes earlier, what we see is Jesus confronting them with their sin. We see that he claims that they're sons of the devil. And then he denies that they know God in spite of their claims. Right? After he gives them this message of hope. You keep getting these little, these little insertions of the gospel just with, without a whole lot of explanation, but that most basic level of that there's hope in Jesus Christ, that you won't see death, that you'll, that, that you'll have truth and that you'll be set free by it, that you'll have life in his name. These are the kinds of things that you see if you go back earlier in, in, uh, just in this chapter. Okay? And so, here he is. He's giving them the gospel. He's giving them hope for the future. And he's setting it up in opposition to what they have been doing, the way they have been living, the things that they have been believing. And their response is to ignore eternity and to focus on the flesh and on today. Because what he says is, this is the, the promise, the gospel part is that you, know, you will never see death. And what do they do? They twist what he's saying in order to make it into uh, a purely physical thing. Do you understand? The physical death that Abraham suffered, they're going, well, everybody dies. And of course this is true, everybody dies, right? Even followers of Jesus die in this simple physical sense, and yet... Jesus promised that those who obey his words, who keep his words, will never see death, is true. If it wasn't true, we wouldn't be here today, right? That's why we've gathered, because we believe this to be true. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we don't believe the health and wealth gospel. Because the whole health and wealth gospel is simply an ignoring of eternity and a focus on the here and now in the flesh. And so all of the promises like this one, that you will never see death, are twisted just the same way that the Jews twist this promise to make it be only about physical death. Now, I could spend a long time theologically uh, explaining and quoting to you from the old dead guys who I read, uh, explaining how this promise is actually fulfilled, but it's really very simple, okay? It's very simple. 
Our knowledge should grow to that level, like I was saying before. But we don't have to get there right now. When Jesus says that if you keep his words, you will never see death, he's saying that you will have eternal life which is not the same thing as saying that there's a fountain of youth somewhere so that you will never taste physical death, right? When I speak of eternal life, you understand that what I'm saying is not that you're never going to grow old, that you're never going to wrinkle, that you're never going to die. When I speak of eternal life, I'm speaking of the promise of God to believers, right? that we will be raised up and live with God for eternity. Now you say, yeah, but he says we'll never taste death. Don't you believe that? And this is where we're, we're tempted to... Uh, you've got this, you've got this uh, perpetual temptation to give in to these little, uh, oh, there's, there's just these little interpretive things that we do with the Bible. And there's, there's ways of making yourself appear more holy. And one of the ways of making yourself appear more holy in your interpretation of the Bible is to say, well, I take the Bible literally. I believe that it's actually true, right? Now, you guys know that this is important for you to believe that the Bible is tr actually true and to, and to believe it literally, right? But when we do this with this, there's, there's a lot of places where we can do that to the detriment, to the harm of what the passage is actually saying. And this would be one of those places where you, the Jews are able to say here, well, all we're doing is we're taking his words literally. We believe these words to actually be true, right? When he says you will never see death, well, what are we supposed to make of it besides he's promising us that we'll never, that we'll never die? But what they're doing is they're being dense and refusing to see the actual meaning that he actually is attempting to communicate through these words, you will never see death. So like I said before, this is not hard for us to understand. And we're not tempted this way very much because this isn't a health and wealth church, right? So it's easy for, it's easy for me to look down my nose and for you to look down your nose at the Jews at this particular point where they're taking the words literally. But I just want you to be aware that that is a common temptation that you will face in other places in the Bible as well. Okay? And inevitably, where you do that is a place where it makes it convenient for you. So there are, remember I said there's various interpretive temptations that we face? Of course, on the flip side, there are also many, many temptations for us to adjust what it means 
to some sort of allegory or to, you know, to do away with the explicit literal and to turn it into some sort of ethereal, like it means something nice to my spirit, but I don't ever have to actually do anything with my body, right? We, we face both of those temptations all the time as we're reading the Bible. But when it comes right down to it, when Jesus says he will never see death, he is declaring his, that, that physical death will be destroyed. That his victory will be complete over physical death. And that we will taste of that eternal life that is offered. And I think you guys can understand this. What the health and wealth gospel does is it says, well, eternal life is all well and good, and we do believe in that. But what we really want is to see some benefit here and now. What we really care about is whether we're going to suffer. And we're going to take all of these promises that have to do with primarily our soul and eternity, and we're going to, we're going to take them and smoosh them into now. Claiming that Jesus meant something so much simpler than what he actually meant. Because the here and the now is very simple. Our physical bodies are very simple compared to facing the reality of eternity and eternal souls. And yeah, they're connected, but I mean, it's so much easier for us to sense and feel and taste the here and the now. You've got a hand. You stick it in the fire, it hurts. You touch the stove and it's like, ow. But, our, but, our, but the things that we do that harm our soul do just as much harm but are, and, and are just as painful, but they're easier for us to ignore. And when we do without physical comforts, we feel it. But when we do without spiritual comforts, we try to deaden ourselves and not feel that. That's just one of the ways that Jews respond to Jesus by ignoring the depth of his meaning and, and keeping it super simple. Another way that they respond is by denying that Jesus could do what he claimed, by denying that Jesus could be who he claims to be. Surely, verse 53, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? 
It's a simple, it's a, it's a simple denial that Jesus is capable of fulfilling that promise. These sorts of responses to confrontation of sin or to a declaration of the good news are, are evidence that somebody does not know God. Okay? So all they're doing by responding this way is confirming what Jesus had just gotten done saying, which is that they aren't sons of God, that they don't know God. And so he reiterates it. He goes back to it. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Again, he just returns over and over again to that theme, who he is, the Son of the Father. And then he says, of whom you say, he is our God. So you say you believe in God, and verse 55, you have not come to know him. Their response of unbelief to this gospel message brings Jesus to say, therefore, you do not know God. In spite of your claim to know him, you do not know him. And so finally, they seek to kill Jesus when he claims to be God by saying, Behold, before Abraham was born, I am. It's not just that he made his claim so clearly this time, because as I pointed out last week, it's already very clear throughout what Jesus is saying, throughout his teaching, what his claim is. It gets more and more specific, more and more explicit, and it ends with this, behold, Behold, before Abraham was born, I am, there in verse 58. But that's not why they picked up stones to kill him. He's been making that claim the whole time. The reason they pick up stones to kill him is because he keeps insulting them. His claim irritates them. about who he is. It irritates them more and more the more he says it. But what really seems to be getting under their skin is the implications of that claim that he keeps laying on them. The, what that means for them. If Jesus is the Son of God, they must keep his words or they will die. If Jesus is the Son of God, they must listen to what he says and love what he says, or they are haters of God. If Jesus is the Son of God, the way they've been responding proves that they are actually sons of the devil, not sons of God. If Jesus is the Son of God, and these are all things that he actually says to them, And so, of course, they're mad. Of course, they get angry. 
Because what he's doing is he's, he's making the stakes clear to everybody. What's at stake is not simply their physical lives and well-being, but their eternal souls. And the stakes are just as high today when we have conversations with people. And they will do similar sorts of things as the Jews. And we will be tempted in various ways to lower the stakes. But this is exactly the opposite of what Jesus does as he proclaims the gospel. He never backs down and lowers the stakes. The more they respond with clarity in their rejection of him, the more clarity he gives to what that means for them and for their souls. Do you see that? The fruit of their response, in terms of Jesus, is that Jesus makes it ever more clear what that means. And what we're always tempted to do is we're always tempted to uh, hide what that means because it's too painful to think about what it means or to force other people to think what it means. And forcing other people to think what it means is likely to get them really angry at us. Angry enough, in fact, that they might actually physically attack us. Now here's where I want you adults to be thinking. This is interesting, okay? We're so concerned about our physical well-being that we're ignoring our spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of the people that we're talking with, right? When we respond this way, what is that? That's exactly what the Jews have just done. They ignore the eternal aspects of what Jesus has been saying and focus entirely on the physical. Now, of course, your words may not deny those things, but your actions of self-protection in only the physical, of, of just the physical, are a denial of exactly what we're told, which is to not fear man, because all man can do is kill you but rather to fear God because he can cast both body and soul into hell, which is the death that Jesus is referring to us never seeing if we keep his words. So what I want you to see is that there are multiple levels to this. There are, you know, the moment you kill explicitly saying, well, this is just talking about physical things. Then you'll be tempted to imply it with your words. And then when you kill implying it with your words, you'll be tempted to imply it with your actions. This sort of temptation doesn't just afflict the Jews, it afflicts all of us. So when you're talking to people, what I want you to realize is that 
you face the same choice that, of whether to be like the Jews or whether to be like Jesus. Today, some people deny the power of Jesus by claiming that they cannot be forgiven. Have you guys ever had a conversation with somebody who says that they're too bad? Oh, yeah, there's no hope for me. If you knew the things I've done. I've had this conversation several times with people. If you haven't, uh, you need to talk to more people. or different kinds of people. Because this kind of conversation is actually a joy when you have somebody who says, oh yeah, there's no hope for me. It's, a, it's an explicit denial of what Jesus says. And the thing that's refreshing about it is that you don't have to, you don't have to give them a really a whole lot of bad news. You can just sort of give them the good part of the gospel. You can say, no, really, there is actually hope for you. But then, of course, if they say, oh, no, I don't believe in that, just say I'm sorry and everything is forgiven, bulk, bleep. Well, then, what's going on there? Actually, it's not that they see how bad they are, is it? It's that they're denying the power of Jesus. And so now what are you left with? All you can do is warn them. All you can do is give them the, the clarity of this same thing that Jesus says. It's their love of their sin. It's their love of doing the deeds of their father, the devil, that leads them to this position, and so it actually ends up still being kind of intense. Because you have to warn them away from that, don't you? You don't want to just leave somebody without hope. There will be other times you have a conversation with somebody <clears throat> and they'll claim to be a follower of God but not care anything for the future and just want good things in this life. Just like the Jews, right? And then you'll talk to other people if you talk to a Muslim <clears throat> They'll deny the sonship of Jesus. They'll say, well, he's a great prophet, but he's not the son of God. And then you'll talk to other people, and other people will deny the need to obey his commands. Now, all of these things are included in this passage, okay? Jesus started off by saying, if anyone keeps my word or obeys his commands... He will never see death. That's on the flip side. There are those who deny the need to obey his commands. Then you've got on the flip side of 
denying the sonship of Jesus. In this passage, Jesus says, my, it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So he's clearly making God out to be his Father, right? And then, in this, in, on the flip side of some claim to be followers of God but not care anything for the future, you've got the Jewish response in this passage of focusing only on death in the physical sense. And then in contrast to the people who claim that they can't be forgiven, you've got this Abraham rejoicing to see the day of Jesus. Rejoicing to see his day. Why does he rejoice? He rejoices because his sins are forgiven. He rejoices because all of the promises of God come true in Jesus Christ. And so what's the point? Well, my point in in drawing out each of those contrasts between what we see in this passage and the way people are going to respond, my point is to make it clear to us that in each of these sorts of situations, in each of these kinds of conversations, it's just the same as this conversation that Jesus is having with the Jews. Their souls are on the line. If they do not turn away from that way of believing, that way of acting, they are sons of the devil and they will not receive eternal life. Often the most difficult part of these conversations is the bold claim that people make that they are followers of God. Why is that the most difficult part? If somebody, if somebody doesn't claim to be a Christian, if somebody doesn't claim to be a follower of God, <clears throat> then you can simply say, you must become a follower of God. But if somebody claims to be a follower of God, like the Jews do, and like is still very common in our culture today, okay, <clears throat> then we have an obligation to disabuse them of that notion, which is a fancy way of saying to tell them that they're wrong. When somebody claims to be a Christian and denies the need to actually obey his commands, you need to tell them that actually they're a son of the devil. That's what Jesus does. Why does he do that? It's because he loves them. This flies in the face of everything that you're taught in most evangelism classes. It flies in the face of everything that you learn in tolerance and diversity training at college. It flies in the face of everything about manners and politeness that you learn from your parents. It flies in the face of everything that you would want to do in yourself. And what it is is it's love. 
it's loving to warn people that if they proceed on the path of death, that they will die. It's, it's loving to warn them and call them off of that path and into true faith. And it's those who are most adamant that they are on the path to God that you have to be most explicit in denying that they are on the path to God. Does that make sense to you? In the whole, um, in the whole diversity, tolerance, everybody's the same kind of culture that we have with regard to religion today, you've got an awful lot of people who look at all religions the same and who look at all the different branches of Christianity as the same. And, you know, they're, they're willing to admit, a lot of them, that there are better and worser kind of branches and that there's more right and more wrong kind of branches in this big tree. But what you can't ever get them to do is to say to anybody who claims to be a follower of God that actually they're a son of the devil. Or anything approximating that. That they're on the path to death. That their sins will not be forgiven. That the only way to, G to, to God is through Jesus. All of these are the things that, that, are, that your works will never save you. That you must have works. All of these things are, are central to this passage that Jesus is arguing with the Jews over. And here's the, here's the kicker. You think, well, you don't, do, you, you're, do you really have to say that they're sons of the devil? Are you sure you have to go that far, Joseph? And I say, well, let's look at what Jesus says. They claim to be sons of God, right? They claim to be sons of Abraham. They claim to be sons of God. They claim to be followers of God, to know God. They claim that God the Father is their God. And in verse 55, Jesus, at the very end, he says, you say he is our God. End of 54, and then 55. You say he is our God, and you have not come to know him. Okay, if you don't want to call them sons of the devil, but you want to say, you do not know God, I'm fine with that. More importantly, Jesus is fine with that. Because who cares what I think? But keep reading. He says, but I know him. You have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word.
Jesus does not downplay the differences in their beliefs. Jesus does not downplay the conflict, the inherent conflict in what each one of them is saying. He does not give in to the temptation to make them like him. Or to pretend like it doesn't matter that much. There are things that do not matter that much about what you believe. But when you're talking about what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to be a Christian, you don't give in to the pressure to say, well, you believe this and I believe that, and that's okay for each of us to believe what we believe. We'll just agree to disagree. Because to say that, to say that is to do what Jesus says he will not do. It's to say that you don't know him. Whenever you give the hint of a possibility that the gospel isn't actually true, that you don't know it to be true, that you're not absolutely sure you're right and they're wrong and that their soul is damned and your soul is saved, and you say, well, I can't know that about them. And I say, no, but we're talking about what they say, right? Jesus says, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. So here's where I want you to see what's going on. The pressure that you're always under is to be a liar like them. That's what they want you to do. That's what the whole world's pressure, that's what all of Satan's pressure is conspiring to get you to do. To become a liar like them. A liar about this one particular thing, which is that there is a hard and fast line drawn between those who believe, and those who are condemned. And that we can actually know the one and only way to God. And any time we let it slide in such a way as to make it seem that, yeah, there may be another way, or yeah, you, you might be able to do okay believing that. What we're doing is we're giving into that same lie. We're to, 
we're giving into the temptation to be a liar like them. Because what what the devil has done is he has convinced the world today to deny the distinction between believers and unbelievers, to deny that there's only one way, to deny that it matters for all eternity. Jesus is unwilling to become a liar. That's it. He won't become a liar like them. And we have to, we have to hate the thought of becoming a liar like them. And the reason we hate the thought of becoming a liar like them isn't because we despise them because they're sons of the devil. No, the reason is because we're having the conversation in the first place because of our great love for them. And so we're absolutely unwilling to let them go from that conversation without a clear understanding of what the choice is before them. If they keep Jesus' word, they will never see death. That's their hope. Without that, there is no hope. And so when we, uh, I think probably the most insidious form of this, of us giving into this temptation is giving into it in a way not that implies that we think they've, uh, they've got hope in some other, in some other salvation, all right, but the one that implies that it doesn't matter that much because that's falling into exactly where we started, which is, well, it's just, it's just a little thing. It's just this life. It's just your physical well-being for a little while. And so we make, we make the promise into one of human flourishing of doing better here and now. Well, yeah, you will do better here and now. Yeah, you will flourish if you obey his commands. But people, to limit it to that is to become that same kind of liar. It's to refuse to teach with authority. Jesus continues to give them simple offers of hope while hammering home the fact that they are sinners. In other words, all of the simple offers of hope come with this adamant demand that they admit that they need to be saved. And the most dangerous form of pressure for you, for those of you who are a part of 
Bible-believing, Reformed churches is people who claim to have the same theology as you, but who don't want everybody else to think that they're bigots. And so they try to keep talk of sin to a minimum, or at least talk of particular sin to a minimum, while claiming that their motive is that they want to be gospel-centered. Okay? Gospel-centered messages that don't force people to see their need because of particular sin are not gospel-centered the way that Jesus is gospel-centered. And so don't let them pressure you into silence. Remember, along with Jesus, that souls are at 